0: Welcome to The Signal, a podcast presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider, exploring how some of the globe's most investable industries are facing upheaval. My name is Catherine Ford, and I'm a journalist with a 20-year track record of reporting on a wide range of financial topics, such as capital markets developments and M&A. In this episode of The Signal, we are going to take a deep dive into the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 and its impact on healthcare provisions. Joining me today are Lee Brown, Third Bridges Global Sector Lead for Healthcare, and Benedict Ippolito, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where his research focuses on public finance and health economics. Hi to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me for this really, really interesting and timely conversation. Before we get stuck in, can I ask each of you for a few words of introduction, just so our listeners get a sense for how you're approaching this topic. Lee, maybe you can kick us off.
1: Thanks so much, Catherine. Super excited to be here. I'm the global team leader for Healthcare Third Bridge, where I manage roughly 25 dedicated professionals who conduct an aggregate over 500 interviews a quarter, covering every sector within the healthcare industry across asset classes, primarily from offices in New York, London, and Shanghai. Now, Third Bridge is a market-leading global investment research firm that provides unique human-led insights to some of the world's largest hedge funds, mutual funds, private equity funds, and management consultancies to help our clients make better investment decisions.
0: Thank you so much. And Ben, tell us where you're coming from.
1: Well, my name is Benedict Ippolito. I'm an economist
2: at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And so I do a host of research on issues within healthcare broadly, and that includes a whole bunch of topics that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act, like drug pricing. Very happy to be here.
0: Fantastic. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act was brought into law earlier this year via a reconciliation process, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that process actually works and its application. But before we do that, let's take a step back and set the scene and give our listeners a bit of an insight into some background. Ben, if I can come to you and ask you to sort of outline how this act relates to the healthcare industry specifically.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, these, these wide ranging laws are sort of difficult to talk about because it's, a, you know, we've got a bill here, the IRA, that touches on climate issues, infrastructure, tax issues, but healthcare uh, really does make up one of the central pieces of this bill. And so when you talk about the healthcare stuff, I think there's two big buckets that I put the provisions in. The first is there's an insurance expansion, all right? Uh, as a result of the law, in short, the federal government's going to give people more money. They're going to give larger subsidies to purchase insurance. So there's going to be more people with coverage in the U.S. than there otherwise would have been. But maybe the more novel piece of this is that there's a real new foray into regulating the drug market. And so we can get into the details later, but generally speaking, the federal government is now going to have a lot more authority through the, through the uh, Medicare program specifically, to determine how and what it pays for certain brand drugs. And that, I think, is really going to represent the key uh, novel piece of this legislation. And It's a lot of what uh, the healthcare headlines are talking really about.
0: So this whole aspect of regulating the drug market, I mean, that's obviously really new. It's unusual for the U.S., If we think about this in terms of sort of winners and losers of this bill, Lee, I know that you feel that there are some people who are just going to be jumping for joy when it comes to this piece of legislation and the impact that it's having on their business. But then there's also going to be some people to whom it's actually going to have a quite detrimental impact on their business. Can you talk us through some of your thoughts on that?
1: I think the interesting aspect of this bill is how active the government is in picking winners and losers. And when I was having a conversation earlier, uh, we we hosted uh, two interviews with Ben earlier that I'd recommend if their clients uh, enjoy. But Ben's point was the government's always picking winners or losers. And I kind of took took a step back from that and, and appreciate it. I think the bigger issue here is is just when you go and look at capping out of pay costs uh, for seniors or reforming, reforming drug prices, uh, north of 70% of the US population is for it. And uh, in fact, um, we've been, uh, uh, on both sides of the aisle trying to, uh, advance healthcare, uh, drug pricing reform. I think the winners
2: and losers point is, is important. You know, whenever, whenever legislation passes, right, it, it has larger or smaller effects for different parts of the market. And it's a function of how and why that legislation was passed. This law was passed through a, a particular, uh, uh, legislative tool that we can talk about more if you want the reconciliation, reconciliation process. But one of the results of that is that The provisions really are targeted to Medicare, right? And so the way that the drug pricing provisions work is that drugs that have been on the market for at least, say, nine years and don't have a generic, suddenly Medicare is going to have a lot of authority about what those drugs are are able to be priced at in the Medicare program. And so when you think about things like winners and losers, I'd focus on that distinction. Are you a drug company that has a portfolio with a heavy Medicare presence? Do you treat conditions that are common, things like Alzheimer's, things like uh, osteoporosis, stuff like that? Well, if you do, well, then suddenly this bill really, really matters for you. If you're a drug company that, you know, you specialize in mental health drugs, in contraceptives, whatever it might be, well, then you might look at this very differently. Suddenly, your exposure to these new policies is way, way lower. And so I think that's one of the key distinctions I would draw when thinking about winners and losers there.
0: Lee, jump in on this one, please.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd I like to more... I guess, properly address what this is doing uh, in terms of prescription drug pricing. I mean, the law requires that CMS negotiate the prices of certain prescription drugs under Medicare uh, beginning in fiscal year 2026. Specifically, CMS must negotiate uh, the maximum prices for brand name drugs that do not have other generic equivalents, and that account for the greatest Medicare spend. What's interesting uh, is you can simply uh, go online, and if you if you Google CMS Medicare spend dashboards, it will easily take you to the list of the the, the drugs. Uh, happy to follow up uh, on that later. Um, but uh, the the concentration of spend. Uh, Across a very small number of drugs uh, makes it very easy to identify who the winners and losers are. And I think this gets into the question of uh, how this bill becomes operational.
0: Now, we've spoken just really briefly at the beginning of the conversation about sort of the process that brought this act into being. So I think it's probably worth taking a step back and asking you guys to talk us through that specific process, how it affects the kind of bill that comes into being and why that process was taken in this particular instance, rather than the usual legislative process.
2: This is the kind of stuff that only people like me used to like. (laughs) These these arcane rules about how U.S. Congress...
0: You can geek it out. Geek it out for us, Ben. That's absolutely fine.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the big challenge in U.S. politics, right, is that if you want to pass a law, uh, for example, you need 60 votes in the Senate. Well, one political party doesn't typically have 60 votes. And so suddenly you're in this position where you might have some some priorities that you want to pass as Democrats or the Republicans, but now you've got to work with the other team. And so that really means that you got to compromise, you water down what you were going to do. Well, all else equal political parties don't want to do that. And so what the reconciliation process is, in short, is it's a somewhat unusual process that was originally designed to adjudicate uncontroversial budget issues. But these bills are allowed to be passed with only 50 votes. And so suddenly it makes it much easier for one political party to pass a bill Without having to involve the other political party,
0: you made a really interesting point there. You said that it was actually used; it's supposed to be used in un- uncontroversial situations. Right? Would you classify this situation as uncontroversial?
2: Oh, hardly. And, and and this is really what's novel about this. It's not that reconciliation is novel, but it's the way that it's being used. It's now being used in recent years to pass major uh, partisan legislation by both parties. To be clear, and but it comes with it comes with these constraints, and this is what people worry about suddenly the only things that are allowed to be included in a reconciliation bill, they have to have a budget impact, for example. Well, there might be important pieces of your policy that don't have a budget impact. Well, those aren't allowed, right? There are rules about it can increase the deficit after 10 years or or more than 10 years in the future. Well, that means all sorts of policies now have to sunset and it creates this really unstable policy environment for firms who are trying to think about you know making investments that are 10 plus years down the road. Suddenly there's all this uncertainty. And so it's got this positive, politically speaking, that you can pass a bill without involving the other party, but it has
1: real constraints that comes along with it.
0: Lee, do you want to jump in on this? Because I know that you've got quite some strong feelings on this particular topic as well for us.
1: Well, I like to say I'm balanced than fair and, and <laughs> pragmatic. Do you notice how we're Come all on, laughing Trapper. about that? <laughs> uh, oh, boy. What, uh, what kind of reputation do I have? So I, I think I think Ben does a nice job highlighting... One of the primary concerns with reconciliation is that many of the policies aren't allowed to be permanent. And this gets into the idea of, of cliffs or what some refer to as sunsetting of provisions. And obviously, this can create a great deal of policy uncertainty and uh, can be vi- very uh, problematic. I mean, think about uh, being an industry leader and trying to make uh, very important decisions on capital deployment, um, uh, especially as it relates to R&D spend, which I want to get into later. Uh, I know that the CBO has kind of denigrated the um, the proposition that this will uh, dampen uh, innovation, but I think that might be a bit of static analysis. I think the other issue um, in, uh, in earlier Ben and I had this conversation is about transparency. Uh, one of the important things that occurs when a bill is appropriately debated and formulated via difficult compromise is that there's a real potential uh, to better understand the gives and takes and support it on a partisan fashion. When it's just jammed through like this, there's a full lack of understanding of how exactly the bill is going to be opera- operationalized. So uh, one of the other big uh, sort of setbacks with the going through the reconciliation process is uh, I'd be willing to bet that, that this law is going to face a similar barrage of legal challenges that are looking to undermine its true benefits uh, and potentially uh, create it uh, into a dis- dysfunctional piece of law when it really has things that are universally supported. I think that's uh, – I'll wrap this up, but I think that's the biggest disappointment is the American people want this. The Democrats delivered it. The Republicans wanted to deliver it. And now both parties are going to fight to to, uh, one to preserve it and the other to undermine it, even though it's what's best for the U.S. populace.
0: So this specific bill is going to make some quite fundamental changes to the way that the U.S. drug market works. So first of all, let's look at the the sort of the the status quo up until now that lawmakers felt needed to be addressed. And then what are those consequences that we're going to see in the future? Ben, maybe I can ask you to answer that one first as well.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the the first answer is an easy one. Uh, We spend a lot on drugs. You know, (laughs) the U.S. spends nearly $600 billion per year.
0: Can we just, again, for our, our audience all over the world, can we put that into context? I mean, how does what the U.S. citizen spends on drugs or the U.S. spends on drugs compare to what we see, say, in Europe, for example?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is one of these things that I think it's really hard to understand out of context. The U.S. is by far the most important purchaser of drugs. So when the U.S. changes policy, it is by far the most important for, for thinking about what it means for the drug industry. Uh, these stats are out of date, but I think in 2017, the U.S., for example, spent as much of the rest of the top 10 spending countries combined on drugs. Now, a lot of those countries are smaller than the U.S., and so it's, it's never a perfect comparison. But to give you a sense, I mean the U.S. really is just the gorilla in this market. It is the most important purchaser of drugs, and the reason that we spend so much money on drugs is not because we take that many more drugs, at least on a per capita basis. It's because brand drugs are more expensive, right? And when it comes to the politics of this, I think that key point is is a number one. It puts stress on Medicare, it puts stress on Medicaid, the public programs in the U.S. It puts stress on the commercial market. But more than that, people really notice it when you go to fill a prescription. The fact that that price is really high is that your out-of-pocket spending is going to be high. And so it's that which gives
1: it real salience to the average voter.
0: Okay. Let me just ask Lee to jump in here because I know that Lee has some actual facts and figures um, on his fingertips.
1: I think Ben said it well. I mean, the problem isn't driven by uh, overutilization. In fact, if you look at the share of adults reporting that they took prescription medication on a regular or ongoing basis, the US does come in at the top of the charts at around 58%, 58%, but the average is 51%. So that's not really, uh, you know, that, that's not really where the drug spends coming along. It, it's the fact that uh, the expensive drugs are staying expensive for a prolonged period of time. And if you look at the per capita spending on prescribed medicines in dollars, uh, the U.S. spends twice as much on a per capita basis uh, than the comparable country average and then uh, just to put that into a more specific context on a per capita basis the u.s spends about one and a half times more than canada 1.65 times more than japan and nearly four times more than the united kingdom so uh it is problematic and it does need a solution
0: so do you feel that this bill is going to be the solution to that problem
1: that's to me catherine
0: <laughs> yeah that's to you <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's an interesting question. If you look at how it was scored, again, the overall bill was deficit reducing, which I I applaud. I I think that uh, anyone who believes that the the, the companies aren't going to pursue avenues to get around this, uh, let's set that aside uh, uh, for a time being. It's very easy to to identify the top spend, and then it's very easy to to feel that the government uh, will do a good job negotiating. And and the reason why is you don't negotiate with the government. You're going to be told what you're going to be paid. But do we need to curb spending? Do we need to do something about how we um, uh, formulate pricing indeed? You know, I want to jump in on that because I think Lee is alluding to something. And
2: one of the things that always strikes me is that people are, they assume way too little uncertainty. Uh, This bill, like many other bills, faces uncertainty with legal uncertainty, economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, All right, legal uncertainty. There are key provisions in this bill, like the penalty that forces a drug maker to accept the price that Medicare gives them, right? That's going to be challenged in court. Whether that stands up or not is going to be central for the influence of this bill. Suddenly, either Medicare is going to be able to tell you what the price is, or they're going to have almost no power to tell you what it is. There's economic uncertainty. Every drug firm is going to want to circumvent these policies to the best they can. How successful will they be? That's a big question. And then political uncertainty, I think, is the big one that I would highlight. One of the things that I think is critical to understand about this law is that Congress gave an agency, the Health and Human Services Agency, a lot of flexibility in setting prices for drugs. They gave them some guardrails, but there's a lot of flexibility. And there's a big question about how exactly are they going to use that flexibility? And you can very easily imagine a world in which, you know, a, a presidential administration that is relatively antagonistic to the drug industry really using that to lower prices quite aggressively, versus one that is perhaps a little bit less antagonistic, not lowering them nearly as much.
0: And how do you think the drug companies are going to navigate that? I mean, is this something where their forward planning will need to change, they will need to bring in more advisors to work on it, or what specifically will they need to do to actually get to grips with this?
2: Yeah, so some of this we know because we see related settings, uh, and we see how drug firms uh, behave in those settings. And so, uh, for an example, Under this new law, if you get selected for rate regulation in the Medicare program, then your revenues are going to go down, period, right? There might be some range about that, but they're going to go down. And so you have this big incentive to to avoid being selected for rate regulation, right? And so the question is, how are they going to do that? We've seen firms do things where I won't get into all the details, but they basically enter into agreements where they allow a generic to enter the market formally, but don't actually cede much market to that generic. Right. So they kind of essentially have a legal agreement with them. Right. That's the kind of that's the kind of agreement we can imagine uh, firms trying to trying to pursue. And so that's the kind of thing that suddenly, if that's really successful, well, you can circumvent this whole rate regulation process because you're no longer eligible if you've got a generic on the market. Um, and so it's those kinds of things that we're looking for.
0: Ben, can I nail you down and ask you to talk about some drugs? specifically, and even some companies specifically that you feel will be really feeling that pinch and that pressure at the moment uh, and being affected by the legislation?
2: Oh, God, now, now I really gonna have to recall the specifics. I think things like Eliquis come to mind. Um, really, the, the way to think about this is, is this a high selling drug? And do you sell it to old people? That's the key distinction. <laughs> because Medicare, Medicare, for those who don't necessarily know uh, in detail, Medicare primarily covers people over the age of 65 in the United States. and So I often think it's a little bit easier to think in conditions rather than specific drugs. So things like Alzheimer's, things like osteoporosis, uh, cardiovascular drugs, things like that, those are going to be the kinds of drugs that are going to be much greater uh, at much greater risk. If you're thinking about stuff like mental health, contraceptives, things of that nature, HIV medication, Hep C, and so on those tend to treat younger populations, right? And so if Medicare is changing the way that they set drug prices, well, I mean, you know, it's not that big of a deal for you.
0: Lee, could you pitch in here as well, when we're thinking about sort of the actual companies that will be affected by this legislation, have you seen any of them springing into action already and trying to shore up support, shore up their business in light of this legislation?
1: Well, I I don't think they're happy about it. You've seen an executive from Bio uh, recently resign over a, a number of missteps um, so they, they, which is something maybe we can talk about if if, uh, if folks aren't um, aware of it but yeah i mean th- this doesn't uh this doesn't leave anyone unscathed you look at the, the sort of the top uh 10 uh, companies uh, uh, with, with Medicare Part D spin, it's Bristol Myers, uh, it's J and J, it's Merck, it's Eli Lilly, it's AbbVie, it's Snofi, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Novo Nordis, Gilead. You know, they're they're all on there.
0: So it's it's all the big players basically in the space. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a it's a it's a group of very powerful people. Uh, and you look at Part B, it's Merck, it's Regeneron, it's Amgen, it's Biogen, it's Roche, it's Bristol. You know, the, the, it's very easy to figure out. Um, Uh, who's on the list. Um, And, uh, you know, just one of the things that's interesting is if you look at the top 10 Part B covered drugs, um, they account for 43% of all Part B spending. Um, And and you're talking about uh, that's the top 10 out of roughly 600 drugs. So (laughs) if if the top 10 are 43%, so it's very easy to, to go after where the money's spent. Um, similarly uh the 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 top ten part d, d drugs um, accounted for roughly thirty nine point four billion out of one hundred and eighty three billion spends so it it's 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 significant in, in terms of uh, where you're spending the money and how easy it is to cut and that and that's what raises the stake so much.
0: Talk me through, and talk our listeners through how this new drug pricing will will actually work in practice, and then also let's spend some time talking about some of the uncertainties. Ben, you spoke about sort of some of the challenges that are out there. That uncertainty is obviously something that no company ever wants to wants to really face. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But let's get started with sort of the the, the how this actually works on a day to day basis, Lee. Sure.
1: I mean, this all kicks off in um in, in fiscal year. 2026 so specifically cms must negotiate the maximum prices for brand name drugs that do not have another generic equivalents and that are also account for the greatest medicare spend so uh the number of negotiated drugs is is going to be uh, limited to 10 part d drugs in 2026 now this is a fiscal year um another uh 15 uh, part d drugs in 2027 uh uh, yet another 15 part d drugs and then the initial. Fifteen Part B drugs in 2028, and another part uh, 20 Part D and Part uh, B drugs in 2029 and thereafter. So, I know it's maybe difficult to keep score, but by 2029, what we're talking about is up to 60 Part D drugs and 35 Part B drugs that are going to be under negotiated pricing. In terms of the, in terms of sort of the, to the
2: specifics, you know, the the way I, I kind of think about this is, if you if you look at the high spending drugs, just look at the blockbusters out there that have big Medicare. Um, markets, things like Eliquis, I think Xarelto's up there, all sorts of uh, uh, insulins, uh, those drugs are gonna be on a list, right? And if you make up enough spending, if your spending is high enough in the Medicare program, then suddenly you get selected for this regulation process, this negotiation process, excuse me. Once you're selected, the Secretary of Health and Human Services has a large amount of discretion about how they're gonna set the price, and that's really where a lot of the uncertainty comes from. But in terms of understanding who exactly is gonna be selected and when, the easiest thing to do is just look down the list of high-selling drugs and almost every blockbuster is on that list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's something for us to work with.
1: <laughs> it makes it easy.
0: <laughs> that is true. That is true.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can I can help out. We, we were trying not to call the, the, the names out, but he, he did mention Eloquist and Torelto, and you have Trulicity and Imbruvica and and Atlantis and Jardians and Ibrants and you know, it goes on and on and on, Bictarvi, um, Optivo. Uh, you know and 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 you were asking Catherine what categories i mean what's interesting is um there's a lot of diabetes uh drugs on here Uh, there's a few anticoagulants and then it's sort of a mixed bag um whether that's osteoporosis or or rheumatoid arthritis or a bone marrow uh, uh stimulant um but uh To Ben's point, the the list is well known. The the question is sort of what are they going to do in in response to being on this list?
0: Hi, my name is Erica Gomez,
2: and I'm an analyst at Thurbridge. If you'd like to know more about the subjects discussed today, our forum team have over 30,000 company and sector transcripts available on demand. They offer extensive insight into drug companies, healthcare reform, and much more. Each transcript features a one-hour interview between an unbiased analyst like me and an industry executive. You can find this content at signal.thirlbridge.com. And
0: now, back to the podcast. I was going to move the conversation on now and have a little chat about some of the longer term effects of this deal and how the law will evolve. Lee, it sounds as if you're seeing high levels of discord in the future, upset, uh, not just within the drug industry, but elsewhere as well. Ben, how, how do you see this playing out?
2: In the immediate term, I think the, the effects are modest, but not earth shattering. Uh, at least that would be sort of my modal expectation. Uh, in the long run, that's where things get a lot more uncertain. And the, the two things that I guess I would highlight is, number one, There's going to be some uncertainty about how obviously this gets implemented. But number two, there's a lot of political um, discussion already about changing the actual law, namely expanding the law. There's a lot of progressive Democrats, for example, who voted for the law, who as soon as it was, or, or as it was being negotiated, excuse me, within the party, said, hey, we've just got to get on board because it's a lot easier to create a new authority to set a price, for example, then it is, or it's a lot harder to do that than it is to expand it. And so, in other words, they really view this as the start of a much more aggressive regulatory regime towards the drug market. And so, thinking long term, the only way that I see this, or the way that I see this becoming a real profound change to the drug market is if future legislation builds on this. Namely, uh, I, will it expand it to include more drugs? Right now, only 20 drugs per year are, are selected. Or more importantly, will it start to include drugs earlier in their life cycle right now you can only be selected after you've been on the market for nine years what if they make that five years that'll raise a lot of money for the federal government that'll be very tempting what if they expand these regulations to not only affect the medicare drug market but they affect the commercial drug market that'll save a lot of money too so those are going to be very attractive political targets likely for democratic policymakers in the future and so that's where i see the biggest downside risk for for firms in this area
0: Lee, listening to Ben there, my immediate thoughts are jumping to the lobby industry. What are they doing on behalf of the healthcare industry in this particular setting? I mean, the situation that Ben describes there really does make me think, well, are are they kicking up a fuss? How much of a fuss are they kicking up? What are they targeting targeting specifically to counteract some of these measures?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would disagree that it's it's not a significant um, impact. Near term. I mean, it, th- th- I think Ben's point is this doesn't kick off until fiscal 26 and, and, and then it builds over time. I think one of the more interesting parts of the analysis was, um, uh, and it, it makes some sense, uh, is that the amount of savings don't really grow uh, in an exponential fashion uh, over the the, the projected window by CBO. Uh, as you're expanding the number of drugs, you would think that would go up. But at the same time, you're moving your way down the list from the biggest spin to lighter spin. But still, you know, when, when you segment where the money spent, um, uh, it, it's interesting that that analysis doesn't balloon. Um, and I, I think it, I've already mentioned litigation, so I don't want to keep... Um, sort of pounding the drum there. I, I want to get more into what the CBO uh, estimates as the reaction from the industry, and, uh, tied to these drug pricing provisions of the IRA, and and they're saying that uh, it will only have a very modest impact on the number of new drugs coming to the market in the U.S. over the next thirty years. And I think most Americans agree with that. They they look at this and say, well, the drug the drug companies aren't going to stop innovating. Um, The CBO is pretty adamant about this. They say that there's only going to be 13 fewer out of roughly an expected 1,300 drugs coming to market. So they're saying, hey, this is a reduction of just 1%, uh, fewer than one drug uh, over the 2023 to 2032 period. It's roughly about five fewer drugs in the subsequent decade, and about seven fewer drugs in the decade after that. So if you believe the CBO, you say, okay, there's nothing to worry about, right? But but here's the, here's the reality, is that the R&D of new drugs costs between one to $2 billion a year. And considering that only about 12% of drugs tested are approved by the uh, 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 by the FDA, talking about the average R&D cost per pr- pr- uh, approved drug to be uh, north of 12 billion dollars. So, if you think they're going to have their top selling drugs. Um, uh, ravaged by a a stipulated versus air quote negotiated drug pricing process that could potentially spill over into the commercial market. You've got to believe that they're not going to keep spending the amount of money that they are. And I'll I'll throw another figure out. Uh, In 2019, the pharmaceutical industry spent about $83 billion on R&D. Adjusted for inflation, that amount is about 10 times what the industry spent Uh, in the 1980s. Uh, They're spending around 25% of revenue on R&D. This is outpacing uh, only the spending uh, in R&D of the semiconductor industry. So what I would say is despite the CBOS uh, estimates saying that this will absolutely have no impact on innovation, I think the very real possibility is that they're underestimating the reaction to this new law by the drug companies, namely a swift cut in R&D spend.
2: You know, it's not, it's not just the the drug companies here that I think matter for the reaction, right? That's that when I think, you know, when we think drug companies, like many of us go to the big names, Pfizer, Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, all those, but a lot of the novel innovation comes at a very sort of in a, in a different context, right? Smaller biotech firms that have, they're funded by much more mobile capital. That's not what CBO is modeling. CBO doesn't model early stage venture capital type stuff. And so we really don't have, you shouldn't think of the score, you know, it's, it's a reasonable attempt to estimate this, but it's not perfect and it's missing things. And if I were to think about areas where I'd be a little bit concerned about the innovation effect, it's those early stage companies where capital is particularly mobile, right? Where suddenly there's a lot of alternatives that exist outside of the drug industry where you can flow those, uh, you can send that money. And so that's really one of the areas where I think the CBO probably is missing the mark a little bit.
0: Now, um, at the beginning of the conversation, both of you commented on how this piece of regulation is an interference in the market that we haven't necessarily seen before. So if we take a step back and sort of think about sort of the, the big picture, where does this leave U.S. healthcare? Is this something where we think we are going to see more government intervention going forward? What are some of the things that could potentially be addressed and where do we think attention will be focused in the future? Lee, can you talk us through some of your expectations first?
1: Well, I think, as Ben said, as far-reaching as and as important as this uh, uh, law is, I mean, it is the most consequential health care reform that we've seen in over a decade so, since the Affordable Care Act was passed. And yet, it, it really passed with, with little to no debate. Um, I, I Obviously, as it stands, we're going to see increasingly more uh, interference. Um, and, uh, to Ben's point, some people don't think this goes far enough. I, 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 would just draw folks attention to the very creation of Medicare Part D and, and for the folks that don't know what that is, that, that was the program that created, uh, CMS's ability to, to cover retail prescription drugs. And when that law was established, um, th- there was this clause that, that the Part D benefit Uh, had a provision called a non-interference clause. And it stipulated that the HHS secretary could not interfere with the negotiations between drug manufacturers and pharmacies and PDPs. Those are prescription drug plan sponsors and may not require a particular formulary or institute a price structure for the reimbursement of covered Part D drugs. So there was a reason why we were able to get Part D put in place in the first place. And that's because they would only put it in place with this non interference clause included, and now we've gone uh, down the road and and now we have hss doing this exact thing. I think it's problematic, and I do worry about uh, the ramifications for uh, innovation and uh, new drug advancement uh, in the future you know when i when I think about the future i I think about when i I talk to folks on the hill on, on Capitol Hill in Washington
2: at the root of Nearly everything I hear ultimately is cost, right? So the US, it is just hard to understand how much the US spends. We spend about $4 trillion a year on healthcare in the US. That strains government budgets. That strains people's pocketbooks. It makes uh, private insurance expensive. And so when we think about where's healthcare going and what isn't addressed, there is always going to be this undercurrent of cost pressure in the US market. And so drug pricing, Absolutely is going to still be in the crosshairs. There are absolutely going to be ex- efforts to expand the powers that have just been created. That is, that is guaranteed moving forward. Uh, in terms of specific areas beyond what we're talking about, you know, the one I hear a lot about on the Hill now is private equity. Private equity backed healthcare is a major focus and it has a certain salience. To I think voters and to policymakers, that is different. It's different than a nonprofit hospital or or whatever it might be, or, or a local doctor or something like that. And so, in terms of areas that I would keep an eye on moving forward, private equity backed healthcare is probably the top of my list.
0: You raise a really interesting point there, Ben, because obviously, I mean, if you say that private equity is something that we should be looking out for in this sector, that to me suggests that despite all these changes that we're seeing, the attractiveness of the sector is fundamentally still there. Is this still an interesting sector to invest in? Does it still offer those opportunities that we've expected, that we've seen from it in the past, Lee?
1: Well, I, I think what's interesting, Catherine, is, is that's a, a static-based analysis. It's where venture capital and private equity have been the rules have just been dramatically changed. Uh, th- th- to Ben's earlier point, that's the real question that I don't think CBO is taking into account. Uh, given how much money uh, is is uh, required to bring a new drug to market, is there an attractive return on investment anymore? So if you want to get into uh, treating uh, orphan diseases, uh, with, with, you know, these, these rare g- genetic diseases, and there's not a Attractive uh, sort of future stream of cash flows, you're just not going to do it. Um, and uh, and and I think the, uh, you've got to balance that with this whole idea of cost pressures. And I think Ben did a great job. Uh, CMS is in trouble. I mean, when you when you look at the the, the facts, and, and some people say this is all hoopla, but um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid are constantly battling insolvency, and so something's got to be done. Uh, I, I, think, I think we can all sit around the table and say, this is a situation that, that needs to be fixed.
0: Now, I like to wrap up our podcast by asking my speakers to give me the, the one to watch. And that might be a company in the space, a development in the space, any sort of activity in the space that they feel that we need to keep a really, really close eye on with regards to the future. Lee, if I can put you on the spot, first of all, what's the one thing that you feel people need to keep an eye on? Well,
1: I don't want to single out, you you always do this to me, but I don't (laughs) want to sing out a particular company or particular drug. There's a lot of interesting things going on uh, in healthcare. I always like to say the future is now uh, in healthcare innovation. But there's a part of this Policy, uh, this law that now stands that we didn't discuss, which I think is is really important. The law now allows us to cap uh, drug price inflation at CPI, and uh, in the past we've we've had some pretty um, aggressive pricing uh, in various markets. So I I think this is a really nice measure that's going in. I think longer term um, that this will keep a cap on on um prescription drug pricing inflation and and i think the other interesting thing that this does is it limits i think ben mentioned this earlier but it's limiting out-of-pocket costs so this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next uh, few years
0: thank you very much ben can i ask you for your one to watch
1: you know i'll say i i'm gonna i'm gonna do the annoying thing and i'll
2: do two because i already mentioned one of them i'd say within and out aus- within and outside of drug markets i would say private equity i, w- I would say uh how is Congress treating private equity? That's going to be one of the big things I'm going to be focusing on, and that's not just a drug issue. Private equity-backed staffing companies, uh, nursing homes, things of that nature have been getting a lot of attention, and I can easily see that being a, a source of new legislation on the Hill. Uh, the second thing that I'm going to be watching within the drug space is how CMS treats these latest Alzheimer's medications. That's an area where almost everyone that takes those drugs in the United States is on Medicare. And so, it's a real big budget budget issue for the Medicare program. And so, it really heightens all the issues we've talked about. Are just crystallized because Medicare is on the hook for every single one of those patients. And so, I'm going to be seeing how exactly they cover those drugs, if they cover them, what kind of conditions they're going to be under.
0: Ben and Lee, thank you so much for sharing your insight in this incredibly complex, but also incredibly interesting topic. I feel that we've once again only scratched the surface, but I'm sure our listeners have appreciated getting that insight from you guys. I'd like to also thank again once our audience for listening to this episode of The Signal, presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider. Join us again in a fortnight for the next episode. And in the meantime, please rate, review and follow our podcast. Indeed, if you like it, tell a friend. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. Plus, thirdbridge.com forward slash signal. From me, Catherine Ford, that's thank you very much, and until next time.